We're halfway through our sermon series called The Toolbox for Life, Skills You Need to Thrive. We're halfway through a sermon series that's designed to take a practical teaching each week and implement it into our lives so that we can thrive and be physically, mentally, socially, and spiritually thriving in our modern world. And if there is a time that we need to thrive, now is a time we need to thrive. So today, it's less of a sermon and more of a teaching, a practical teaching on how you and I can thrive as we deal with negative thoughts. Toolbox for Life, how to deal with negative thoughts. It sounds a lot like a self-help title, doesn't it? Like if you were to go online and see the self-help section, you would find books and many books that sound like it. And that's just what I did. I went online to see what other people were saying about negativity and negative thoughts. And I saw that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of self-help books, mom blogs, podcasts, and pseudo-leadership gurus hawking their products all to be had. There was one podcast, and it was run by a hulking personal trainer who promised to crush negative thoughts in 30 days while getting the mind and the body shredded. It was really tempting, but I didn't pay the ten ninety nine for the insider secrets. There was also a book promising 10 easy steps for reducing and, uh, and, and fixing negative self-talk, but the steps looked a little bit confusing, so I stayed away. There's also all sorts of music playlists that you can find that talk about how to reduce anxiety, reduce uh, negativity, and put your brain into a study and relaxation mode. But when I listened to them, it made me feel like I was in a spa waiting room and just felt awkward. And of course, there were countless life coaches and trainers all just waiting to take a hold of my life and turn it around in one quick consultation. But by the end of the search, I quickly realized that for a very real problem, there were a thousand solutions out there just waiting to be had. All I had to do was pay for them. There were a thousand solutions, and some of them were better than others, and some of them were just plain awful. But I remembered that no industry exists unless there's money to be had, and the world of negative thought crushing is primed for business. The Cleveland Clinic talked about how you and I have roughly 60,000 thoughts every single day. And of those 60,000 thoughts, Nearly 80% of them, or 48,000 thoughts, are negative. 48,000 of your 60,000 thoughts, 80% of your thoughts every day are negative. Some have taken a step further and they've described the pandemic of negativity as negaholism. It has its own name, negaholism. And it's this pandemic of negaholism that fuels the inflammatory articles and videos you see on the internet. Because it's suggested that the negative reporting creates this reward and response cycle in your brain. And it gets you upset when you see something. It gets you angry. And then you feel negative. But it also triggers the reward center of your brain. So somehow you actually are left wanting more of that negative stuff. And so you desire more and more of it, and you go back to it, and it might actually create addictions to negativity, said the Wall Street Journal. But those aren't the only things that we're dealing with. 
Back in 2017, long before the world pushed everything to the digital space with the COVID pandemic, Business Insider tracked a group of a couple thousand North Americans. And they were trying to figure out how many times a day the average North American picked up their cell phone trying to use it for something. And they found out that the average person picked up their iPhone 2,600 times every day. And that's the average person, the baseline user, the average person, 2,600 times a day, which meant that the person that was like the high-end user of it picked their phone up 5,400 separate times every single day. And most of the time, it was to scroll through social media or to communicate with one another via some text or messaging platform. There's no way that can be a healthy thing. Like, there's no way that can be a healthy thing for us. We already, in, in this world, we already try to compete with each other in real life. Whatever the neighbor does, we have to have it better. Whatever the person next to us is wearing, well, we got to buy that too. In a world that we already compete with, it can't be healthy to look at other people's perfectly manicured social media presences and try to compete with that. It can't be healthy, and I can only imagine that's one of the causes of the deep sense of inadequacy and fear of missing out that most of us have in life. But there's also very real connections. Very real and serious connections between negative thinking and the serious mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. Negative self-talk is a massive problem. Negative self-talk is a massive problem, and it comes as a barrier towards working to a healthy, abundant life. It's a barrier that shuts that down Hard stop. Negative self-talk is those untrue things that you tell yourself. It creates a false narrative that you think about yourself. It's those untrue thoughts that keep you from ever having the friends you want because you always think that you're not good enough or you're not pretty enough or you're not strong enough or you're not wealthy enough. That untrue negative thoughts, they create this false narrative that keep you feeling sad, nervous, and anxious and worthless and broken down. Negative thoughts. They're a problem. They're a problem. But the biggest problem about them is not just there. The biggest problem is that negative thoughts contagiously spill over to every other aspect of your life. They don't just stay in your brain. They take over everything else around you, and they become the lens by which you view the world. And so suddenly you begin to interpret everyone else's actions through this negative lens. And at best, people don't meet your expectations. But at worst, people's actions are malicious and hurtful intentionally. It begins to control the way you relate to the world. It controls the way that you relate to others. It changes how you relate to your spouse, your kids, your job, the traffic jam, your flat tire the cell phone bill, it it changes how you relate to everything around you. So negative thoughts. It's a problem, but how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? First off, I want to make it clear. I'm a pastor and a chaplain at the university. I have a degree in business and I have degrees in ministry, but I'm not a mental health professional by any stretch of the imagination at all. I can maybe do your taxes, but I can't provide cognitive behavioral therapy for you. Just not going to happen. My role is to support faith and ministry programs. That's what I do. 
I married a fully licensed counselor, and I've read most of Carissa's social work textbooks, but still, that doesn't make me qualified to be your therapist, and I'm not going to try. I'll gladly refer you to the multiple trained, licensed professionals in the congregation who are just waiting to help. But if that's not clear enough, I'm not going to pretend to be your counselor in this sermon. I believe in counseling. I think it's normal, it's healthy, and I think you should probably go to it. So if this isn't a counseling session, and if this isn't a self-help sermon series, what is this? Because there's no tagline. I'm not promising that you'll be free of negativity and three easy-to-remember bullet points or your, tithe back, or your tithe money back guaranteed. I'm not promising that. What I'm sharing today is what I think is simply the basics of following Jesus. The basics of being a Jesus follower. The basics of what that is, and I'm convinced that that is transformation. I'm convinced that you and I are in desperate need of transformation, in desperate need of being changed, because we don't need an upgrade of skills in order to make us better and compensate for our flaws. We need a complete life transformation. We need an overhaul from the inside out to change us so we're different than we ever were before. And I'm convinced that there's a massive need for the church of God to look more like the kingdom of God and better reflect the God of that kingdom. But that only happens when you and I experience earth-shattering, life-changing transformation. And transformation comes from having your habits, your desires, and your lifestyle changed. It requires a rewiring of your habits your desires, and your lifestyle. I've been reading a book by a guy named James K.A. Smith. And James K.A. Smith writes a book about the failure of the Christian church and Christian education in making fully transformed disciples. He writes and he talks about how our, our model of information, information, information doesn't work to transform anyone. And he suggests that we need a rewiring of our habits, our desires, our thoughts, and our lifestyle in order to be fully transformed. And he writes, he tells a story. As he's writing his book, he tells a story about how uh, his wife got him into a health kick. And his wife gave him this book, and the book was all about how if you eat plants, uh, you eat not too much, and you eat healthy, clean foods, you're going to be better. And he became like, he became like so into this book he couldn't put it down. He became that person that he would go to dinner parties and tell everyone about his new diet as they're all trying to eat their food in peace. And one day he's talking about how he's sitting and he's reading the next chapter in the book. And he's reading the next chapter about how clean foods, fresh foods are the way to go. And as he's reading this chapter, he's so engaged with the content, he says, I have to share it with somebody. So he looks up and he's looking around him. Where can I share this? Who can I share it with? And as he looks up, it dawns on him. With the book on fresh eating in one hand, in the other hand, he has a hot dog as he sits in the Costco food court. Right? So like in that moment, he realizes information alone doesn't change him. He needed a rewiring of his habits, his desires, his lifestyle, and the things that he loved. Right? The things that you love drive you. The habits that you have drive you more than any information you get. For him, it was when I read a book, 
I go to Costco and I get a hot dog. Like, that was what he did. And so that contradiction between healthy habits and that gave him the idea that maybe it's the rewiring of our habits. Because the truth is, reading a self-help guide to defeating negative thoughts only gives you more information. It doesn't actually transform you. Last week, uh, Pastor Ben talked about the need to refocus when you feel anxiety creeping up. He talked about the need to breathe and give a, a mental pause. This week, I'm encouraging you to take that one step further. Well, it might actually be a couple steps further. What I'm encouraging you to do today is I'm encouraging you to not only just refocus in the moment, I'm encouraging you to refocus your entire life, to reorient your entire life toward and around Jesus. Because if we're talking about transformation, I'm convinced that a refocus on Jesus will rewire our thoughts, our habits, and our lifestyles. I'm convinced that refocusing on Jesus will transform us in a way that will deal with not only our negative thoughts, but will change our entire life. To be clear, though, when I'm talking about dealing with mental health diseases, or I'm talking about dealing with negativity, I also think that you should go talk to your doctor. I also think that you should go talk to your therapist. I also think that you should talk to the other experts that are in your life to help you. Because I think transformation also comes through those methods and those means and the tools and techniques that they have. Because I'm convinced that that is one part of a whole of transformation. Refocusing on Jesus and doubling down on your spiritual life in no way says that you can't do those critically important things. In fact, it says that those are a healthy part of transformation. When I think of transformation, though, I think of one group of people in particular. When I think of people who are transformed, I think of the disciples. I think of the disciples because I can think of no other group of people that had their lives completely changed from before. They were a group of people who were anything but perfect. They were like you and me. They were people that messed up all the time. But while the Bible never says that they had, uh, that any of them struggled with negative thoughts, the Bible does say that several of them had angry and aggressive thoughts. The Bible said that most of them had some selfish thoughts that turned inwards, and they struggled with that all the time. Case in point, in Luke 9, there's a story about Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking. It says that he was steadfastly heading towards Jerusalem, like he was on a mission to get to Jerusalem. And as he's walking, Jesus and his disciples, they encounter Samaria, And Samaria at the time, Samaritans and Jews didn't really like each other because way back centuries ago, back when the temple was being rebuilt, Samaritans and Jews got into an argument and then they just never liked each other. And it became physical, it was violent, and sometimes it ended up in really, really bad things. So the Jews and the, uh, and the Samaritans hated each other. Jesus is a Jew, he has Jewish disciples, and they're walking towards Samaria. The Samaritans don't like it. So the Samaritans say, we don't want anything to do with you, go away. Jesus' disciples don't really like that. They feel offended. And so James and John, they get the bright idea. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, wouldn't it be great if you just called fire down and destroyed the city? And then we could walk right through and the problem would be solved. And Jesus says, no. He tells them, no, we're not doing that. And he keeps walking. Later in Luke 22, the disciples are sitting around a table and it's the final meal that Jesus and his disciples are going to have together. He's about to die. And he's told them this. 
over and over and over again. And this is the point where they should have gotten it. And so he's telling them one last time that his mission on earth is coming to an end. And he says, I'm about to leave. And I'm about to, this is, this is it. And his disciples, they turn inward and they come to him and they said, hey, Jesus, so we hear there's going to be a kingdom. So who gets to sit on the throne? They take it and they make it all about themselves instead of about the mission that Jesus is on. But later, a couple hours later, Jesus is being arrested in the garden. And the text tells us, the other gospels tell us, um, well, the text tells us that a disciple, the other gospels tell us that it is Peter, takes out his sword and he cuts off a guy named Malchus's ear. Malchus is the servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas is there, Malchus is there, the ear gets hacked off. And you can see a pattern developing, right? Like you can see this pattern where throughout the gospels, there's selfishness, there's aggression, there's a total disregard for the entire way of Jesus, right? They kind of sound like us, maybe not without the ear hacking. But if the disciples were in counseling, I think their therapists would start making them write down their triggers. John's triggers might read something like this. When people don't welcome me, I'd like to call consuming fire down on them until they're nicer. Peter's triggers might read something like this. When things don't turn out well, I get angry and I attack other people. And sometimes I cut off their ears. It's not a good look for the disciples. Not at all. But the craziest thing happens. The craziest thing happens to the disciples because in the, le- in the span of less than a year after Jesus dies, the disciples are radically different people. They're totally different. The book of Acts shows us that these people become different where Peter isn't the same Peter and John's not the same John. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, there's a completely different Peter and John who are walking to the temple to pray. They're walking to the temple to pray and they encounter a guy who can't walk. And the guy can't walk, but he holds out his hand and he says, hey, can I have a donation to get by through the day? Peter and John say, hey, we can't give you a donation, but we can heal you. And so they, the text tells us that they, they pick him up physically. They hold on to him, they pick him up, and as he's being lifted up, his legs are strengthened and he can walk again. But it doesn't stop there. It says that for the first time in his life, he gets to jump up and down, and he's so happy. He's jumping up and down, and he's saying, Jesus did this for me. God did this for me. I'm healed. And he's praising God as he goes around, and everyone is happy except for the rulers of Jerusalem. They're not happy. And it says this in the text. The next day, the rulers, in Acts chapter 4, 5 to 7, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So this is how we know it's basically been about a year since Annas is the high priest now, no longer Caiaphas. So it was about a year between these, these, two, these events. So Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So here's Caiaphas. Here's Peter. Here's John. There's others around. And they form the pseudo trial where Peter and John are on trial and they're asking them questions. And this is a confrontational moment. This isn't like a friendly chat. Like there's there's confrontation in the air here. And so if you were to go off of Peter and John's track record, Caiaphas, Annas, John, and Alexander, like they're all in a bad way. Bad things are about to happen to them. 
But I, I love it because the text mentions all the people that were there, but it doesn't mention that Malchus, the servant, was there. And I kind of wonder if he saw what was happening and he thought to himself, I've, I've been here before. I didn't like how it ended last time. Caiaphas, I'm going to head down to the store. I'm going to grab something for you. I'll be back later, um, and we'll talk later, but we'll probably talk in sign language because your ear is going to be hacked off. But something bizarre happens. Rather than Peter and John hacking off ears, they're calm. There's no heavenly fire invoked. No. Instead, they're gracious. And not only that, but they make a plea for salvation for the people that are confronting them. Something different that they would have never done before. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Jerusalem, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man, this man stands before you healed. And then in verse 12, it says this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter stands there and he makes this this impassioned plea that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who they killed but is raised and by Jesus' power can transform And Peter says it's only by the power of Jesus, only by his resurrected power that this guy can walk again. But everyone there quickly realized that the man who couldn't walk but now could, he wasn't the only one that was transformed. The text tells us that they knew that Peter and John were different. It says when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John had been with Jesus. They'd spent three and a half years with Jesus, but that wasn't the only thing that they'd done. When Jesus called the disciples, he said, Follow me. Follow me. That invitation was more than just asking them to be in close contact and cheer him on every time he did a miracle. Follow me was an invitation to become a trainee or apprentice. A trainee or apprentice, right? Those are terms that we don't really use today. We don't have a ton of apprentices. If you're in the trades, you understand what being an apprentice is. You were an apprentice to the electrician or to the plumber that you worked under for a couple years, and you'd shadowed them and you did what they did. You saw what they did and you followed after and you incorporated what they did into your life. Or if, or if you went to the, uh, into the medical field, if you're in, in medicine, you kind of know what that is. You were a resident and you had to work like 80-hour weeks under another physician. Like you understand a little bit about what it means to be a trainee. But for the rest of us that didn't do that, being an apprentice or a trainee simply means that you follow somebody and you do what they do. You learn how they do something, the techniques and the methods, and you do what they do. It took the disciples a while, but they got the lesson. They didn't really do it when Jesus was on earth. They weren't that great at following after him and doing what he did. But the first couple chapters in Acts, after Jesus dies, shows a different side of the disciples. Instead of fighting, they're doing a lot more praying. 
Instead of like arguing, they're sharing. They're going to worship together. They had learned their lesson. They realized that they were called to do more than critique Jesus' actions. They were called to follow Jesus and do what he did. Peter and John had their lives transformed because they spent time with Jesus and they did what he did. They spent time with Jesus and they did the things that he did. And so today, for those that are dealing with negative thoughts, you might not be dealing with anger. You might not be dealing with aggression. It might not be selfish thoughts, but they might be negative thoughts. So for you who are dealing with negative thoughts, I suggest you do the same thing that Peter and John did. I suggest that you refocus by spending time with Jesus. And I suggest that you refocus your life by doing the things that Jesus did. Spend time with him and do the things that Jesus did. The basics of following him. And the reason is because where you focus is where you go. Where you focus is where you go. And it's a principle I learned when I first started racing bicycles. So in college, I got into racing bicycles. I'd ridden a bike all my life. I loved it. It was fun. But then I got into racing them. And the thing about racing bicycles is that you win by getting to the finish line first. Like super simple, right? Just get to the finish line first. But the way you do that is by saving energy because you have this constant enemy, the wind, that's trying to take away all your energy by beating you down like you're fighting against the wind the entire time. And so the way that cyclists get around it is, like, is acting like a flock of geese. And so if you've ever watched a cycling race, it's like watching a bunch of geese in lycra riding together in a tight formation. So they're all pushed together in a really small formation because they're all trying to not get in the wind. And the way that you do that is by getting and riding as close to the back wheel of the person in front of you, right? So you're riding skinny tires in a tight pack, riding as fast as you can. And it's a recipe for disaster, If you've ever watched a cycling race, you've probably also watched cycling crashes because it happens all the time. All the time. One momentary slip of your eyes or like not paying attention and people crash. So I was terrified of this. Uh, I didn't want that to happen to me. And so I asked a friend who was more seasoned than I and I asked him, how do you avoid crashing? And he looked at me and he said, here's what you do. You keep your eyes where you want to go. You keep your eyes where you want to go. So simple, but profound. And he, he went on to tell me that if you constantly stare at the tire in front of you, the person's tire in front of you, you will inevitably run into that tire and crash. It just happens. Because where your eyes go, no matter how much you concentrate, it's like your body is drawn there. Where you focus is where you go. And so he told me, instead of focusing on the wheel in front of you where you don't want to hit, put your eyes up. And look at the road where you want to go. Because where you focus is where you go. And that principle is just as true for your spiritual life, for your mental health. Because where you focus is where you go. In 2 Corinthians 3.18 it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. With ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Where you focus is where you go. It's as simple as that. You want to be like Jesus, focus on Jesus. You want to be like Jesus, do the things that Jesus did and focus on him. The more you look at him, it says that you are 
contemplating the Lord's glory. For, for better terms, it means to stare with determination. It's like you're in a staring contest and you say, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep staring at Jesus. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to stare at him and do the things he did. So if you're the person that reaches for their phone 2,600 times a day, it's because you've built up a habit of reaching for your phone 2,600 times a day. Where you focus is where you go. If you're staring at everyone else having a good time, you will ultimately begin to feel jealous or sad because you're not having a good time as them. Where you focus is where you go. Or you might be the person that begins to feel left behind every time your friends have a big announcement. They have kids, they get married, they move off, they get a new job, they get promoted, and suddenly you don't feel so good about the life that you were once happy about. Because where you focus is where you go. If you're wanting to compete with somebody, keep focusing on them. You'll end up competing with them. What I'm suggesting, though, what I'm suggesting is that you rewire your thoughts, your actions, by creating habits based on the life of Jesus. Rewire your brain, rewire your life by creating habits based on the life of Jesus. So maybe it's time you created habits based on Jesus' life instead of focusing on the latest headlines. There are many, many things that Jesus did in the Gospels throughout the entire Bible. But here's like a brief, brief list of the spiritual habits that Jesus practiced. Jesus cried. It says that in, uh, in Hebrews 5, it says, He cried with fervent cries and tears. He gave petitions to God with fervent cries and tears. And he also prayed. In Luke 6, it talks about how Jesus spent the entire night praying to God. He would spend hours and hours going off by himself and praying. But it also says that Jesus fasted. After fasting 40 days and nights, it says, he fasted 40 days and nights. I'm not saying you should fast 40 days, but maybe 40 minutes. And then in verse 4, it says that Jesus ate, right? So after he fasted, he also ate. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, tax collectors and sinners were eating and fellowshipping and just hanging out with him. It also says that he celebrated while eating. He was at a wedding and he celebrated the good that was in the world, He celebrated good. It says that Jesus worshiped publicly. He was in Nazareth, and so he went to the the synagogue because that's what he did on Sabbath. He worshiped publicly with other people in the same room. And that says that Jesus served. Mark 10, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to be a servant, to serve others. And there's a whole host of other things that the text tells us. It tells us that Jesus practiced solitude, that he practiced praise and giving thanks. He would give thanks to God before God ever did anything. He would praise and give thanks to God. He would read scripture. It says that Jesus restored others. Restoration of the whole person. Jesus was into that. He did many, many other things. In the first sermon of the series, Pastor Rodley talked about the power of habit, the power of making a plan and creating a habit and how that can change your life. Creating habits, spiritual habits, is just as crucial for your spiritual transformation. You want to be spiritually transformed? Create new spiritual habits. Because if you're dealing with negative thoughts, maybe you need to have Jesus' habit of service. Because it's really hard to feel down on yourself when you're feeding somebody who doesn't have food. Or maybe you need to create the very real spiritual habit of self-care 
Because eating and sleeping are just as spiritual as praising and worshiping. Or maybe, maybe you need the spiritual habit of being in community to check you on your negative thoughts. Because sometimes the community might look like in-person church instead of Zoom in my pajamas church. The habit of community might also look like regular appointments with your therapist. It's good, it's healthy, and they probably miss you. Or it might look like a great celebration with friends to just go out to dinner and celebrate the good that's in this world. You might need to create the habits of fasting because there's a power in, remind, in, in the reminder that discipline and abstinence, it helps you refocus on Jesus and reminds you that you don't have to give in to everything that you want. You're more than that. You might also need the habit of praying. And sometimes maybe you need to pray all night because there's a lot that you have to say and your neighbor doesn't have to hear it. God wants to hear it. And then there's praise. You might need to praise and give thanks because praise is the secret weapon of the Christian life because there's nothing the devil hates more than when you praise God because praise does something to you where it takes you out of yourself and it reminds you that faith and spirituality are not about you. They're about God. That it's not about your victories and triumphs. It's about God's victories and triumphs. And when you praise, it's not about you. You're saying, God, you're awesome. Look what else you can do in my life. And it creates this sense of wonder that makes you get up in the morning and say, man, God is real and he can do something here. So maybe you need to give praise and thanks. But maybe, maybe you also need to shout, yell, and scream. Like, have you ever read the Psalms? Half of those Psalms you would never get up and say those things yourself in church. Like David is asking that the bones of his enemies be crushed, right? Like you're never going to get up there and say in your prayer request, I wish my enemies would be crushed to, to, to bits, right? But you think it. And so maybe it's time that you yelled those things out to God because he wants to hear it. He said to David, David, lay it on me. Like I want to hear all of this. I want all of you, David. Talk to me. So maybe you need to refocus your life and reorient your life towards Jesus by spending time with him and doing the things that he did. Refocus. Because the same transforming power that changed Peter and John from aggressive, ear-hacking, fire-calling people to gracious, grace-filled people is the same transforming power that can change your neural pathways. It's the same transforming power that can change your habits, can change your life, Refocus on Jesus and do what he did. The basics of Christianity. I'm going to close with this. The reason I say refocus is because when you're in the presence of God, amazing things happen. You will hear that in every single sermon I preach because it's all about the presence of God. When you are with God, amazing things happen. There's hope, there's healing. And there's peace that comes from just being in the presence of God. And there's an amazing thing that happens when you start doing the things that Jesus did. They act like training wheels. Because the goal of, the goal of Christianity is to be spiritually mature people, to be emotionally mature people, to be physically and, and mentally mature people. And when you're a mature person, like sometimes you need training wheels to help get you there. For those of you that ride bikes, like you didn't just ride your bike the first day, like you had training wheels that kept you upright. 
The things that Jesus did, the spiritual habits that Jesus created, those are for us because they, we need them to keep us upright and balanced. We need it because sometimes in our life, when we're really selfish, maybe we need some more service. When we're really negative, maybe we need to praise more because gratitude and praise literally rewires your brain. So as I say this, today is the day to start this transformation. It doesn't start tomorrow because tomorrow never comes. You only have today. Today is the moment that you have to say, I'm going to choose to be with Jesus and to do the things that he did because I want to be like Jesus. I'm tired of the life that I have currently. I want to live a completely different life that only comes from spending time with Jesus and doing the things that he did. If you want to take that time today and start that life and see how he transforms you.